the seats to the book of Philippians chapter 3. I'll be reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. That is, we who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word to our souls and minds. Father, I ask for this continued blessing of your spirit in the mercy of the gospel for your saints this morning and the gospel be heard and if any not know you you will make them your own so that they'll be on the journey of loving the pursuit of your holy son So help me this morning as a pastor, as a teacher, 
to unfold what is here in the Scripture and help us see it with our minds and love it with our hearts to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Again, to excuse the post-COVID dry cough. It's been three weeks since I've even been contagious, so. But this thing goes on. A.W. Right. Tozer, back in 1948 in his book, The Pursuit of God, wrote these words. How tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ. And we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelations of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of a false logic which asserts that if we have found Him, we need no more seek Him. This is set before us as the last word in orthodoxy, as it is taken for granted that no Bible-taught Christian ever believed otherwise. And thus the whole testimony of the worshiping, seeking, singing church on that subject is crisply set aside. The experimental heart theology of a grand army of fragrant saints is rejected in favor of a smug interpretation of Scripture which could certainly, uh, would have certainly sounded foreign and strange to an Augustine or a Rutherford or a Brainerd. End quote. Tozer rightly rejected the false logic which says, if you have found Christ, then you need no more seek Him. Actually, the gospel of Jesus is this. Wherever in the, in the soul and the heart of a sinner, wherever the gospel of grace has entered that soul, then there is a desire for more and more and more grace. When Paul said, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, his goal was to make Godaholics out of Christians. And so we finally reached chapter 3 of Philippians, and this is what I want to do. Instead of the other way, like I normally may do, walk through the trees and look at the trees and unfold line by line, clause by clause, what I want to do is this morning see the forest first. And then in the weeks following, we will come back and look at some very important trees. So at the core this morning, what I want to show from chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, two things. Why and how. Why any of us who claim that we belong to Christ. Why we must 
Pursue him. Seek him. Secondly then, how? And the overarching point is that the ongoing pursuit of God is not optional. Post new birth. So first, why? Our passage, verses 1 to 14, gives four reasons why we must make it our ambition day after day to strive after Christ. The first is we must strive after Christ in order to know Him. It's right there. Look at verse 7 into verse 8. But whatever gain I, Paul, had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth or value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul's a few decades in to his Christianity. And he wakes up saying, I am still counting, considering everything is lost. Why? Because of the value that I'm pursuing of knowing, knowing Jesus. He went hard after Christ, forsaking all things that most people normally live for or boast in is the larger context. And he did it in order to know him. To know that very man who is Yahweh, who is God. The one that confronted him in an appearance on the road to Damascus. And still, I want to know Him more. Notice there in verse 7, it's a past tense verb, which is the perfect tense here in the Greek. The past, it has ramifications up to here. But Paul in verse 7 is looking back at his conversion. I counted his loss. Oh yeah. He turned Initial repentance. But verse 8 is present tense. I count. I am counting. I am continuing to count. Everything is lost. Paul continues to renounce everything that hinders his getting to know Christ. Why? Because the evidence of new birth, that a person has been made alive in Christ, that saving faith is actually in the heart, the evidence of that is that Christ to you is a treasure, a value beyond all others. That's what it is. That's how Jesus said it in Matthew 13. In a nutshell, He summarized it. The kingdom of God 
is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes home and sells everything he has in order to buy the field. We must strive hard after Christ because not to would mean we don't want to know him more. And that wouldn't be good. That could be a sign of spiritual deadness in us. Listen to how Paul prays for Christians, for the church in Ephesians 3. Starting with verse 18, he says, I'm praying for you that you, We've been walking with Jesus for 50 years. Well, not at that point. Okay, 23 years. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. To comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. That is, in other words, to know the love. Of Christ to you. No, no, to know it. This is a knowing that surpasses knowledge. So it's not merely an intellectual, I know the right answer to that catechism question. It is to know the love to you. That's a knowing, that's a relationship knowing that surpasses. Knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There is much of Christ for every saint. Much of Christ that is left to be known. We who claim that Jesus is our treasure, but we never ever go hard after Him in order to know Him, we're caught up in a contradiction that cannot continue. If the ongoing life of a church person has no evidence that to them Christ is precious, valuable, a worth beyond all, if if there's no evidence of that, then it may be evidence that you never knew Him. It might be evidence that that church person is one of the three soils that Jesus talked about in His parable and not the good soil. So the first reason from this passage that we must pursue is to know Him more and more. Secondly, we must strive hard after Christ constantly in order to confirm our justification. Justification refers to that act of God where He forgives all of our sins and attributes or imputes to us Jesus' righteousness. 
our account in response to saving faith. That's at the core of justification. Just so you know, I'm gonna, we're, these are some of the trees we're going to come back to and really go slowly through that central doctrine of the gospel called justification by faith alone. We will. But, okay, but now, start in the middle of verse 8 and just slowly read and just read it in its context. Paul says, For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Present tense, even today as he's writing in prison in Rome, I count them as rubbish for a purpose. Why, Paul? In order that I may gain Christ. And something else, in order that I may be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, meaning my obedience to the law of God in Moses. I'm not, I don't want that. I'm not seeking that. In order that I be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, trust in Christ. That is, the righteousness from God that he gives to me that depends on faith. So notice, again, the present tense. I, Paul, am ongoingly counting all things as trash, as rubbish, that is, in other words, I am forsaking them. I am pursuing Christ. Why? Says it. In order that I may gain Christ. That I may share in His righteousness. Okay, what does that mean here? Notice what it says. Paul, he is a Christian. He's a believer. He has been justified. And he is straining, laboring forward towards this goal. That I be found in him and with his righteousness in the future. I want that. If it doesn't say it, help me. After church. Or at home group. Or give me a call. But that's what it says. So that, that at least has to mean that gaining Christ's acceptance. Now, he already has it. But he's saying now, in the future, there's a day coming. And it's not yet. And gaining Christ's acceptance when he comes to judge the world. Or, or, or maybe that that's what he's got to mean that, or, or when he dies and goes to be with Christ. For Paul, in other words, to lose Christ would be to, to lose everything and to gain Christ. When that consummation of the kingdom and everything promised happens, which has not happened yet, even today has not happened yet for Paul or anybody, but on that day, 
when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, to gain Christ, I'm in Him, would mean He didn't lose anything, but He gained Christ and His fellowship forever. As Paul here is speaking as a Christian, and he's looking into the future, and thus he's doing what he must do in order to gain Christ. To, to be found clothed. Not in his own righteousness. But to be found clothed then in God's righteousness. And what must he do? He must pursue Christ. And consider all things in comparison to him that they would get in the way of that, is rubbish. Okay. But Joe, isn't the imputation of Christ's righteousness given to us? In other words, the large New Testament term for this is justification before God. Isn't justification by faith alone. Yes, absolutely. Paul can't be more clear in his writings and here in verse 9 he's clear. The righteousness that Paul pursues is based on faith. But he is in another sense the future fruit of that. Pursuing. Read it again. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having the righteousness which comes through faith, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This has to mean that the faith which justifies a person, saves a person, before God, it's done. You're justified now and forever. That faith which justifies is a faith which is actively forsaking, worldly, values, treasures, and pursuing Christ. In other words, if justification depends on faith, which it does, and if forsaking the world as rubbish is, is necessary for having the future benefits of that justification clothed in Christ's righteousness, then that means that the faith that does justify cannot be understood as merely a one-time decision for Christ. But it's an ongoing preference for Christ, desire for Christ to know Him more. And the pursuit 
of Christ in Christians' lives is the evidence of their real faith by which you were justified at the very instant that faith miraculously by the Spirit sprung up in your heart. And you can never be more justified. You'll never be less justified. And therefore we are to go on pursuing Him in order to confirm it's true of me. My faith is real, which means I really am justified. And that's why I'm looking to that day, which informs how I live today. So, first two reasons we pursue Christ is to know Him. Secondly, to confirm our justification. And thirdly, we must strive after Christ because we are really really imperfect, screwed up, undone. Therefore, we must pursue him. Verse 12, look at it. Not, don't misinterpret me, Philippians. Not that I, Paul, have already, I'm there. I've arrived. I've obtained this. Or that I am already Perfect. No. But I press on. I press on. To make it my own. That's it. We're sinful. We're not there. Everything of the, the stuff that Paul says I'm continually considering is, are the temptations and the battles that are, that are vying for our affections and hearts to replace Christ. That's the Christian life. If you have a battle like that, that's really good news. It says, oh, see, that's how much you love Christ. You hate what's still within you. That's why you pursue Christ. And they're connected. I mean, look, a failing student. I, look, I suppose at least I want to get B. I can't even get a C minus. What do you do then? I see my imperfections and you pursue. You seek out the tutor on the side that you need to get your grades up. Okay, if you're like me and I take these off, I can, can't see a thing. I can't read. I have to go like that. If you're nearsighted, and you, what do you do? You seek out an optometrist. That's what you do. Therefore, not to pursue Christ, that, that would mean in a professing Christian's life that, that either you do not trust Him, that He has the power, or that He even has the willingness to change you, to work on you. Or it means this. Now, I know He has the power. But I don't want to pursue him in the context of this aspect of my life because I want to cling to my imperfection. I want to cling to my sin. And in either case, and to one extent or another, that is a Christian experience that we do. And this is why repentance is over and over in our lives. In either case, as we do that, we're belittling Christ. You don't care. 
you don't have any desire to help me or love me. Or you do, and that's why I'm afraid to pray or even, 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 I'll even pretend you're not omniscient. Walk this way. Because I love that. So thirdly, we need to pursue him because we're so broken and undone. Oh, and he's such a loving, wonderful savior. And fourthly, we need to strive after Christ because he has pursued us and has made us, every true Christian, he has made us his own. Conclusion, biblical logic, therefore we must pursue him. Look at verse 12 again. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. No, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his this sentence here destroys the false logic that Tozer referred to in my opening quote. That false logic that says, if Christ has found us, we need not seek Him. Paul's logic is the exact opposite. I press on in order to gain Christ. Precisely because he has already gained me. It's his. And that's why we pursue him. Probably the best commentary on that verse 12 there in chapter 3 is what Paul already said in chapter 2 of Philippians. Verses 12 to 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here it is. Now watch the same line. Because, he'll say in chapter 3, Christ pursued you and grabbed you and he owns you. He's got you. Because here, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's got this. The reason the Bible, in, all over the place, if you read the text in their context, the reason the Bible can make, in one sense, our future final salvation, the resurrection of the dead that has not happened yet, in some sense depend on our ongoing pursuit of holiness. Pursuit of Christ with and do so without at all turning Christians into self-reliant legalists who have no assurance of their present salvation. The reason the Bible can do that is because it makes our pursuit of Christ depend and it's grounded in and it is therefore sure in the sovereign work of God in our lives who bought us and made us his own. 
the most fundamental reason, therefore, why we must go hard after Christ. Oh, and this is a good way to wake up in the morning and get alone and pray. It's because Christ is in you. He made you his own. If you love him, it is only because he first loved you. Which means, without your permission, he came into your life in the hearing of the gospel. And you were changed. You believed. And from that foundation, Paul says, because of that, that's why. In my imperfections, I press on. I want to know him more and more and more and more. And with a full assurance of future salvation as he does so. Now, the shorter and second part of the sermon. How then? How do we pursue him? Well, from the passage... There's a three-step answer. You can see it in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies the first step, and okay, let's pursue him. How do we pursue him? The first step and ongoing step and constant step has to do with the way we view ourselves. As he said in verse 12, not that I have become perfect. Because you never will down here in your mortality. That awaits the resurrection. Not that I've become sinless and without temptation anymore. No, or the way he says it in verse 13. In other words, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I have not obtained. I've not arrived. Paul's ongoing pursuit, in other words, here's this why it's key. It grows out of a deep dissatisfaction with the way he is still. And that dissatisfaction is a blessing. It is a gift. It is God's grace. Grows out of it. Just like our pursuit of food. Like when I watched my daughter get in the car, where is she going? And she never does it. She must have been really hungry. Because hunger Hunger is what drives the pursuit of food as she drives down to Chick-fil-A. Dissatisfaction as a Christian. And where we're at drives our hunger for Christ, our pursuit of Christ. That's the Christian life. And what an awesome thing for first to be chosen, taken up by Christ. He owns me. 
but how much all the more so when we realize that's true of us walking on earth today all over this planet who are in Christ. That, that's true, though I am yet a sinner, still broken, undone, spiritual idiot at times. Oh, but he Therefore, instead of discouragement, as we look into the mirror of the Scripture and see dissatisfaction with our spiritual state at that moment, oh no, not to draw into depression, to drag. It is, I'm hungry, I'm going to Chick-fil-A. Christ, much more than Chick-fil-A, is always there to be pursued. So think about it. This is a question. When, when you prayerfully, this is key to this, when you, in other words, with a heart towards God in prayer, when you read your Bible, or when in the local church you're, you're listening to expository preaching, do you sense in the midst of that dissatisfaction with your walk with Christ at the moment. I hope everyone to themselves just said, yes. That's what's supposed to happen. That's good. So the first step in, in developing a pursuit of Christ is constantly being open to that holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual life today. We're constantly in need of standing before the mirror of the Scripture and let it do its work in order to recognize you have not yet arrived. There is so much more you do not know in your soul. Not in your head, but in your soul. The, the, the way that two close friends can know each other. It doesn't mean, oh yeah, I know him because let me tell you when my friend was born. When it, it's, it, it's an immaterial development of closeness, vulnerability. And with Christ as a sinner, with Christ, the creator of the universe who became a human being forever. And has tasted every temptation you can possibly taste to the full extent extent because he never gave in and sinned. And so when our dissatisfaction is real, it's the ongoing starting point every day of our real pursuit of Christ. Which leads to the second step that Paul says here. I am actively forgetting to forget those things which lie behind. 
In other words, don't let anything in your past hinder your pursuit of Christ today. When those things rise up to choke out your desire for God, like Paul, actively put them aside. Put them out of your mind and put them in the context of what's all over this passage we'll come to in the weeks to come. The gospel. Justification. Amazing. Understand the depth and the height and the width of what the cross really is. And then your past will be turned into a stepping stone of worship and glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul's point is uh, don't ever look back. And it's like, it's kind of like saying, right, hey, uh, don't think about the pink elephant. Okay. He's not talking about amnesia or give me a mess with that part of my brain and we'll take it. That's not it. The point is, he, he knows his past. He, he just reiterated his past. He looks back at his past as the stepping stone for, oh, the gospel. And we're pursuing Christ. That he doesn't allow it to paralyze him in his pursuit of Christ. And then the final step. Right there in verse 13, strain. That's very active. Strain forward to what is ahead. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I, the Apostle Paul, do. Yeah. An illustration of that is exactly what Paul gives us if you turn over to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 9 gives his own illustration of his daily life, his striving. 1 Corinthians 9, starting with verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, as Christians... An imperishable crown. And so I do not, uh, therefore, I do not run. It's the athletic in a race. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one just beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the way to press on, to go hard after Christ, to pursue Christ, 
is to do it with all the diligence and discipline and self-denial of a world-class athlete. Those ice skaters are at the rink every morning at 4 a.m. Seeking gold medal. The Christian life is a focused pursuit to know Christ personally. More and more and more. It's a pursuit to be changed by Him with the determination, with the plan, and with the purpose of an Olympic athlete. Paul did not run aimlessly or just beat the air. He lived with spiritual goals in view. And therefore, that's why he, with that, part of the goal is controlling his passions. And he did it all for the supreme value of the goal of knowing my Jesus better and more. So sovereign grace, let's feel the impact of Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Paul urges us through his own examples, what he's doing with the Philippians, to pursue Christ, to go hard after as an Olympic athlete. So, set the goal in your life again and again. Set the goal of knowing more of the Word of God. Set the goal. Set the goal of grasping the great and crucial doctrines of biblical Christianity, because there's all kinds of Christianities out there today. Set the goal to say, I want to understand the doctrine of God better, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the incarnation, the doctrine of Christ. I want to understand what all that hubbubaloo or whatever that word would be that happened in the 1500s in the Great Reformation over justification by faith. Is, is that really important or is it just nitpicking within religious folk? Know the doctrine of your undoneness, of sanctification and the promise of future glorification. Know the doctrine of God's unmerited an unconditional election of you. Set the goal of seeking the will of God in your life as we saw last week in the first two chapters of Philippians. In other words, the goal of work in me so that that faculty of discernment would cause me more and more to be choosing and approving of what is excellent. Set the goal of not at all merely knowing stuff in your head, but to, to love the beauty of the scripture, of the gospel, 
of Christ, of the presence of the Spirit, to, to love the beauty and the wonder and the mercy and the sovereignty of God. The goal to commune and know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit more that I may know Him. Set those goals. Then encourage you to have the plan then. Plan your reading and your prayers and your study and your worship. Pursue Him. And then go for it with all your might. And know this as the foundation, as sinful, imperfect, real Christians that we are. We are to know in all of that now, it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for His glory, for His good pleasure. And therefore we we do not run or pursue Christ in our own strength. And therefore, we can be assured that going hard after God will bring us to know Him deeply and enjoy the confirmation of our justification as we pursue Him. Let's pray. So, Father, we biblically, joyfully, and confidently pray, cause our pursuit of Christ, our pursuit of you, our communion with you, our trust in you, our trust in the gospel as an Olympic athlete walking in the Spirit and shunning the works of the flesh, buffeting our body, making it our slave. We ask that you work this all the deeper that we, a year from now, will have areas of growth and of knowing you through life in your sovereign hand, in pain, and suffering, and joy, and goodness, and the word and prayer. Cause us to live in this world as the aliens that we are, because we're in Christ, to the glory of your name.